this is Everything Else, the FT Culture Podcast, and I'm Griselda. This week, we're bringing you a special episode recorded in part at the Hay Literary Festival in Cartagena, Colombia, last month. We'll be hearing from writers across the world on subjects as diverse as the troubling dominance of the English language, race in America, and the power of silence in a world that won't stop talking. So this week we're breaking from our usual format on the podcast because we just didn't want to pass up the opportunity to showcase some of the amazing voices that were the speakers of the Hay Cartagena Festival. So what we're bringing you is a flavour, a kind of best of the festival. And we're going to be hearing from speakers, including the twice Booker Prize winner, J.M. Kutsia, who, as I'm sure you'll all know, is a South African novelist now living in Australia. He wrote one of my favourite books, Disgrace. I do not like the way in which English is taking over the world. I do not like the way in which it crushes the minor languages that it finds in its path. I don't like its universalist pretensions, by which I mean its uninterrogated belief that the world is as it seems to be in the mirror of the English language. We'll also be hearing from the Ghanaian-American novelist Yaj Yassi, who published her debut novel, Homegoing, last year. It won a raft of prizes, including the John Leonard Prize for Best First Novel at the National Book Critics Circle Award. It won the American Book Award. It won a 5 Under 35 National Book Foundation Award and the Penn Hemingway Award for Debut Fiction. So it's a much lauded and, I have to say, brilliant book. Trump felt almost inevitable given the given the way American history works. When there is progress for black, black people, there is this immediate backlash. And finally, we'll be hearing from the polar explorer, Erling Kager, who's just published a book about the power of silence. I think you need to turn around, maybe for half a minute, maybe for a few days, and um, stop thinking. And Alec Russell, editor of The Weekend FT, was in Cartagena for the festival. So I'm sitting in the courtyard of the Santa Clara Hotel, right in the heart of old Cartagena. And there are some birds in the palm trees above me. Yes, they are palm trees. The sun has finally gone down on a blazingly hot day and a fairly extraordinary day. I've seen more Panama hats than I can recall, and that includes taking into account grand social occasions in Britain. The literary festival scene in Colombia is a somewhat smarter affair than the equivalents in the UK and the US. And you can also hear behind me the running water from the giant well that traditionally fed this very grand and beautiful old residence. Possibly the most striking scene of all today was striding through Cartagena at two in the afternoon, the temperature must have been 32, 33, and the streets were full of people in their Saturday best heading off to see the somewhat secretive J.M. Kutsir in the city convention centre. It was really quite a remarkable sight. Alec, welcome back to the podcast. Griselda, it is very nice to be back, and I only wish I was speaking to you from Cartagena as opposed to in London. <laughs> The last time you were here, we were doing um, a fake news quiz, which I recall you were rather good at, and I was not. I took the fake news quiz to Cartagena, <laughs> and I tried it out on 500 people in an old theatre in Cartagena, and they loved it. Wow, my fake news quiz travels the world. 
So you mentioned Kutsia in the clip and we're going to come to him later in the episode. But first I just wondered, what were you doing in Cartagena? Why, why did you go all the way there? I went to Cartagena to go to the, the Hay Literary Festival, which takes place every January in this sleepy, incredibly hot Caribbean port. And it draws writers from across sort of Latin America and also some from North America and, and Europe. And the FT Weekend has just launched a partnership with it. Cool. Well, let's start with Yar Jassy, who was one of the speakers at the festival. Tell me about her. Jassy is a remarkable novelist. She is precociously young, having published in her mid-twenties last year this phenomenally successful novel, essentially on slavery, no small topic for anyone, let alone someone in their, in their mid-twenties. To do this, she draws on experiences both from the land of her birth, Ghana, and also from the US, where she now lives. It tells the story of, of a family that is separated in the late 18th century by a brutal series of events via the slave trade. And the novel then unfolds in two strands. One, the strand of the family that's been left behind in Ghana, or rather stayed essentially happily in Ghana. And the other strand is the family that's been brutally uprooted and taken across to the US into slavery. So I'm, I'm reading the novel at the moment. I'm in the episode where... This is not a spoiler, but they've escaped from one of the plantations, the the strand of the family who was sold into slavery. And it's amazing having this contrast between the two places because you realise there's something about a kind of inherited trauma, an inherited loss that's on the side of that goes to America. And on the Ghanaian side, they have this rich trove of memories and history that's completely been severed on the other side of the family. So these two strands develop in totally different ways, in a sense. She pulls it off remarkably well. I mean, when I embarked on it, I thought, mm, I'm not sure I'm going to go, go for this episodic approach because I've just got into one of these characters and then suddenly we move on a you generation. You leave them behind, yeah. And as you say, on the US side of the story, there is no connection between the chapters because they have no familial memory or account of what happened in previous generations. But it is astonishingly powerful. It is, it is heartrending. And I think it's also the case that it was probably impossible to pull something like this off just a few decades ago. What is particularly striking is her utterly unflinching treatment of the Ghanaian villages, towns, tribes, communities' involvement in the slave trade. And of course, slavery is one of the most wrenching of subjects. This aspect of it has always been quite awkward to deal with because the people that were making large amounts of money out of the slave trade and benefiting from slavery overall were not the Ghanaians, but they were in some cases facilitators. I did actually ask her if she felt that she was able to write about that history in a way that someone of her parents' generation could not. And I should just say, listeners, that we were speaking in a very boisterous, noisy environment in Cartagena, so apologies for the sound quality. For sure. I assume that it is more possible now than it was then. I mean, my parents, my dad was born the year Ghana gained independence in 1957. Wow. And so you're still so close to mm. kind of all of this entire past, not just the past of slavery, but the past of kind of rising up against colonialism. I think, you know, you, you didn't want to kind of give someone else the fuel or the ammo to kind of launch back at you. And mm. so people didn't really want to talk about Ghanaian involvement mm. in, in the slave trade. 
part of what I'm cheered by is the fact that so many people are talking about aspects of Ghanaian history that I hadn't mm. heard about growing up. And so there is kind of this, this more willingness, I think, to be a little bit more vulnerable with the parts of our history that we perhaps try to keep hidden. In the Trumpian era of nativism and populism, race is, well, if it ever went away, is, is right in the forefront of American politics and of the public debate. And I asked Yar whether that context made her novel take on a sort of greater significance in the eyes of the public and the reading, her reading public than she intended when she embarked on it. As writers, obviously, you can't ever predict the climate into which mm. your book is being published. When I started this book in 2009, Obama was, Obama president. was president. He was visiting Ghana. Everything was kind of mm. joyful and cheerful. And it was hard, I think, at that point to envision this kind of future. And yet, you know, the things that we are dealing with in terms of racism in America were clearly already still there, still kind of the drumbeat of America. And so there's this, this kind of double, this dual thing at work, the, the seeing and the not seeing. Um, and Trump felt almost inevitable, given the, given the way American history works when there is progress for black people, there is this immediate backlash. And writing the book, I was kind of always, always seeing that. If I had this moment at the end of the Civil War, it was always followed by something like Jim Crow. If you have mm. a moment like the Great Migration, it is always followed by hard times like heroin in Harlem. So this movement, this kind of cyclical movement of the way that trauma works in, in history was something that I was quite aware of. And so to have the book published in the era of, of Trump has just been, I guess, a, a reaffirmation that the past is never really past. You haven't moved as far past mm. these things as you as mm. you would like to think. I must confess, I hadn't, I hadn't thought of that, but, but this, is, this is actually, you can see this as being part of part of a cycle yeah. that, that it, yes I appreciate that race played a role in the in the election and in the kind of the, what in British political terms you talk about sort of dog whistle politics or something yeah. stuff of sort of tuning but, but I hadn't thought of it as, as just part of a sort of cycle of hundreds of years of, of, yes. of steps forward and then reaction how do you feel now you've grown up in the US and as you say there was this moment of great opti optimism when America has its first black president mm -hmm. now there's this regression yet your book ends on a just teeny weeny optimistic note. Does. does that reflect your sense that whatever the state of play now, that the, the future will be better and that America is possibly coming to terms with race and this sort of awful wound of slavery at last? Not to diminish the, the hopefulness at the end of the book, but the book doesn't end in America. You know, it does end elsewhere. No. And the kind of the hopeful note is between the two characters and the fact that they are able to kind of see themselves in each other, the Ghanaian and the African-American. But I'm also aware of the fact that ultimately those two characters have to return to America and kind of continue to deal with the things that, that they had kind of put on pause in order mm. to travel to Ghana. So actually that's quite depressing. Yeah. <laughs> Is it? I mean... Yeah. But, but if they're able to kind of carry mm. that, sense of, that sense of connectedness and empowerment back with them, then perhaps what it is saying is we don't need anybody else to recognize mm. how, how beautiful we are. I remember I was, I was working in, in South Africa in the mid-1990s when Mandela was president. I was a young foreign correspondent, and I remember I was there when there was a big delegation of, of African-Americans who came out mm. and, and were, were going around 
there was a very sort of interesting d discussion that, that sort of unfolded with the black South African journalists and black South African politicians right. who were basically saying, well, actually, guys, you think you understand where we're coming from, but you don't entirely understand where, you, where we're coming from. And I think it was, quite, it was quite unsettling for some of the Americans who'd come over and were thinking, is that dynamic still there? Is the I mean, I think that dynamic is certainly still there in America. I guess speaking about Ghanaian or West African immigrants mm. in general, there is this kind of, I think, desire to distance themselves from the narrative of what it means to be black in America mm. because we recognize the, the kind of negativity that surrounds that. And so you want to kind of play up your ethnicity in a way that says, you know, I'm, I'm Ghanaian, so don't treat me the way you treat black mm. people. It doesn't necessarily work in Alabama, though. Presumably you are work black. It doesn't in Alabama. And it, does, it, it doesn't oh. really work <laughs> yeah. at all. It's a pretty common American mm. immigrant story, regardless of mm. race, actually. You're kind of always kind of playing American xenophobia against American racism, even in the time mm. when Irish immigrants and Italian immigrants and Polish immigrants were mm. coming in droves. What they, what they saw when they arrived in America was still plenty of resistance, signs that said, you know, no Irish, no Italian, mm. no Blacks. Mm. And the no Blacks was so consistent that I think what people started to realize is that as long as you could kind of put yourself in a position that said, I am separate from this thing that we know is on the bottom, you could kind of inch your way up. And so I, I don't think it's actually unusual the way that the, the distance takes place for, for Black immigrants. I think it's just more notable because we mm. are Black. So that was the author of Homegoing, a book I'm reading right now and really enjoying it. I can recommend it to you all. So the South African novelist Jem Kutsia was the headline act at Hay. Why do so many people want to hear him speak there? Jem Kutsia is, is one of the remarkable writers alive today. He's also one of the most reclusive writers alive today. So, yes, he was an astonishing drawcard. In terms of his writing, you have to think back, first of all, to the 1980s and the really frenetic and awful days of the fight against apartheid. And this writer emerged onto the global stage with this utterly sparse, compelling series of novels, Waiting for the Barbarians, The Life and Times of Michael Kay, which won the Booker Prize, and that was his initial great claim to fame. And then he did miss a beat with, with the end of white rule and the arrival of Mandela as this rightly sainted and adored leader. And a couple of years into, into democracy and into Mandela's rule, he wrote Disgrace, which was also a brilliant novel, but it was far from being a sort of idolization of the new South Africa. And then, as I said, he just he's basically disappeared from view. He hardly ever appears in public. So people just flock to go and see him or hear him. Yeah, I'm jealous of your, your chance to hear him speak. I remember reading Disgrace when I was at school, so it must have been a, a bit after it was published, and feeling like, as a teenage reader, here is a very morally complex, tricky book with kind of shades of grey, and the people are not particularly likeable, but they're somehow relatable. It deals, actually, with themes now that feel very pertinent, you know, kind of sexual assault, rape sense of what is your personal responsibility how do we how do we punish these things he's one of the great writers of the english language and yet it's interesting that 
His next book, which is a short story collection, Seven Moral Tales, like some of his previous works, is going to be published first, not in English, but in Spanish. Well, uh, like one or two other great writers of the English language, English is not his first language. His first language was Afrikaans. Ah. And he spoke very powerfully about this in, in Cartagena. And he was saying that, on the one hand, English had, I think he said, it had liberated him from the, the worldview, the narrow worldview of the Africana. But then he rapidly went on to lay into the sort of hegemony of the English language in terms of global literature and the, and the hegemony of Britain and of London and New York in the realm of global literature and strike a blow for the South. And, and of course, his Colombian and Mexican and other Latin American people in the audience, they loved it. And he was having a discussion with his Argentine publisher and editor, Soledad Constantini, on, on the stage. And this was one of the, the main focuses of their discussion. She was talking about how some of his books came out in Spanish and, and she asked him whether this was a meaningful gesture on his part. Ever since childhood I've written in English. As a young man, I had absolutely no doubt that access to the English language had liberated me from the narrow worldview of the Africano. I fell under the spell of the English language and particularly English poetry. The modernists like T.S. Eliot and Ezra Pound were enormous influences on me. I wrote poetry that echoed theirs. Then by degrees, the impulse to write poetry grew weaker and for a while I wrote nothing at all, neither poetry nor prose. When I began to write seriously again in my 30s, I was writing English prose and it has been so ever since. I write in English, but I have never felt that English is my language, as English must, must have felt to Shakespeare, for example, or to Thomas Hardy, or to a North American writer like Herman Melville. I have a good command of English, spoken and written, but more and more it feels to me like the kind of command that a foreigner might have. This may be the reason why the English I write is so easily translatable. I've worked closely with translators of my books into languages that I know, and it seems to me that the versions that my translators produce are in no way inferior to the original. So I can't imagine writing English poetry because I can't imagine writing for a language that is someone else's language. It does not particularly matter to me that my books should not appear first in the English language because my books are not rooted in the English language. I do not like the way in which English is taking over the world. I do not like the way in which it crushes the minor languages that it finds in its path. I don't like its universalist pretensions, by which I mean its uninterrogated belief that the world is as it seems to be in the mirror of the English language. I don't like the arrogance that this situation breeds in its native speakers. Therefore, I do what little I can to resist the hegemony of the English language.
So one of the things that struck me personally most was his focus on on a link between writers in Australia, Southern Africa and, and Argentina. And and he's demonstrated his commitment to this movement, this philosophy, by setting up a, a seminar at the University of Saint-Martin in Buenos Aires, which he talked about in Cartagena. My overriding concern as professor at UNSAM has been that students of the three literatures in question should be able to read and meet and interact with writers from elsewhere in the South without Northern mediation, by which I mean without having to pass the cultural gatekeepers of the metropolis of the North, the people who decide which books from Latin America will be translated into English and which will not, who decide which figures from the South will be promoted worldwide and which will not, and most importantly, which stories told by the South about itself will be accepted into the repertoire of world literature and which will not. I hope that my tenure of the Cathedra has in a small way encouraged Buenos Aires to speak to Sydney without passing through New York, Bogota to speak to Cape Town without passing through London. You'll notice that when I've spoken of the literatures of the South, I have avoided the term the global South. And there is a reason for this. To my way of thinking, the South is a real part of the world, a part of the world with a climate and flora and fauna of its own, indeed with more than just natural features in common, with strong commonalities of history and culture. The commonalities of history include long and complex histories of colonization. The so-called global South, on the other hand, is a concept, an abstraction invented by social scientists. It is the negative other of the North, the site of absences, absence of wealth, absence of infrastructure, absence of communications. Thus, whole nations are allocated arbitrarily and irrespective of geography to the categories North or South. According to the decision makers of the North, South Korea belongs to the North and North Korea to the South. Australia and New Zealand in the Southern Hemisphere belong to the North. Mexico in the Northern Hemisphere belongs to the South. Is Kutsia a very political writer, do you think? Well, he was an intensely political writer in his prime South African years of writing. And by that, I mean the 80s and 90s, because in the mid to late 90s, I think the mid-90s, mid he, he actually left South Africa and went to live in Australia. But in his, his prime South African years, he was just about the most political writer writing in South Africa. I think since then... He's arguably broadened out a bit. I mean, he's, he almost acts as a sort of precursor of some of the great themes that have been playing out in society in recent years. But I think of him as rather more even than a, as a political writer. Yeah, and with him, it's always about the sort of human drama that almost plays on top of the political landscape that's changing all the time, that the thing that's kind of rooting it is the human conflict, the relationships that don't quite work. Exactly. And you, you, you see that in his latest collection of short stories. You see that also in his recent 
quite short novels, which are often about failing relationships, often about people ageing and coming to terms with their own failures. These are flawed characters, many of whom have done things that they are not entirely proud of. And yes, he's delving that part of the human condition, I suppose. One of the particularly powerful moments of his talk and discussion was, was when he was asked about the sordid atmosphere that occurs in the work of some of the writers he admires, especially Samuel Beckett, and indeed in his own work. I take Beck to be a philosophical novelist, a novelist whose mind is exercised by ancient and fundamental philosophical questions such as uh, what distinguishes human beings from other animals? Do beings exist who are higher than human beings? To ask such questions in the medium of fiction requires facing up to the lower or bestial side of human beings, as well as interrogating our so-called higher side, for example, the faculty of reason of which we are so proud, or the systems of morality that we have created in order that we may live together without plundering and killing each other. It is necessary to descend into the depths, the underworld, the world of the irrational and the pre-moral, I believe, to carry on these explorations, particularly if you are the kind of novelist that Beckett is. And do you agree, Alec, that Kassir is a, a philosophical novelist? <laughs> yes, he is a, ph a philosophical novelist. He certainly makes me think about many of the bigger questions in life. But the thing that he made me think about most of all, actually, was writing. He was asked about a connection between praying and writing. And he said this, in both cases, it's hard to say to whom one's discourse is directed. You have to subject yourself to the blankness of the page and you wait patiently to hear whether the blankness answers you. And then, and this will feel very acute to anyone who writes, he concludes, <laughs> sometimes it does not and then you despair. <laughs> All those writers who do not file on time. So having spoken about Kutsia and his, his brilliance, we're going to listen to a short story, The Dog, which is from his new collection. This is a particularly interesting story, I think, and particularly pertinent to the moment. Without giving too much away, it deals with themes of male sexuality, power, willpower as well, the power to restrain oneself, the personal responsibility to do that. And also, he writes, I think, so viscerally about the sense of fear that you have when you're in a position of not having power. He does all those things. And when you hear him read it, it's all the more powerful. I mean, this is vintage Kutsia, and this is Kutsia showing that 30, 40 years after he was writing these award-winning novels, he's still at the top of his game. The sign on the gate says, Chien méchant. And the dog is certainly méchant. Every time she passes by, he hurls himself against the gate, howling with desire to get at her and tear her to pieces. He is 
a big dog, a serious dog, some sort of German shepherd or Rottweiler, she knows little about dog breeds. From his yellow eyes, she feels hatred of the purest kind shining upon her. Afterwards, when the house with the chien méchant is behind her, she ruminates on that hatred. She knows it is not personal. Whoever approaches the gate, whoever walks or cycles past, will be at the receiving end of it. But how deeply is the hatred felt? Is it like an electric current switched on when an object is sighted and switched off when the object has receded around the corner? Do spasms of hatred continue to shake the dog when he is alone again? Or does the rage suddenly abate? And does he return to a state of tranquility? She cycles past the house twice every weekday, once on her way to the hospital where she works, once after her shift is over. Because her transits are regular, the dog knows when to expect her. Even before she comes into view, he is at the gate, panting with eagerness. Because the house is on an incline, her progress in the mornings going uphill is slow. In the evenings, thankfully, she can race past. She may know nothing about dog breeds, but she has a good idea of the satisfaction the dog gets from his encounters with her. It is the satisfaction of dominating her, the satisfaction of being feared. Whether he knows she is a female, whether in his eyes a human being must belong to one of two genders, corresponding to the two genders of dogs, and therefore whether he feels two kinds of satisfaction at once, the satisfaction of one beast dominating another beast, the satisfaction of a male dominating a female, she has no idea. How does the dog know that despite her mask of indifference, she fears him? The answer, because she gives off the smell of fear, because she cannot hide it. Every time the dog comes hurtling towards her, a chill runs down her back and a pulse of odor leaves her skin, an odor that the dog picks up at once. It sends him into ecstasies of rage, the whiff of fear coming off the being on the other side of the gate. She fears him and he knows it. Twice a day, he can look forward to it, the passage of this being who is in fear of him, who cannot mask her fear, who gives off the smell of fear as a bitch gives off the smell of sex. She has read Augustine. Augustine says that the clearest evidence that we are fallen creatures lies in the fact that we cannot control the movements of our own bodies. Specifically, a man is unable to control the motions of his virile member. That member 
behaves as if possessed of a will of its own. Perhaps it even behaves as if possessed by an alien will. She thinks of Augustine as she reaches the foot of the hill on which the house sits, the house with the dog. Will she be able to control herself this time? Will she have the willpower necessary to save herself from giving off the humiliating smell of fear? And each time she hears the growl deep in the dog's throat that might equally be a growl of rage or of lust, each time she feels the thud of his body against the gate, she receives her answer, not today. The sheer meshon is enclosed in a garden in which nothing grows but weeds. One day, she gets off her bicycle, leans it against the wall of the house, knocks at the door, waits and waits, while a few meters from her, the dog backs away and then hurls himself at the fence. It is eight in the morning, not a usual time for people to come knocking at one's door. Nonetheless, at last, the door opens a crack. In the dim light, she discerns a face, the face of an old woman with gaunt features and slack gray hair. Good morning, she says in her not bad French. May I speak to you for a moment? The door opens wider. She steps inside into a sparsely furnished room where at this moment an old man in a red cardigan sits at table with a bowl before him. She greets him. He nods but does not rise. I'm sorry to trouble you so early in the morning, she says. I cycle past your home twice a day, and each time, no doubt you have heard it, your dog is waiting to greet me. There is silence. This has been going on for some months. I wonder whether the time has not come for a change. Would you be prepared to introduce me to your dog so that he can familiarize himself with me, so that he can be shown I am not an enemy, that I mean no harm? The couple exchange glances. The air in the room is still, as if no window has been opened in years. It is a good dog, says the woman. Un chien de garde, a guard dog. By which he understands that there will be no introduction, no familiarization with the chien de garde. That because it suits this woman to treat her as an enemy, she will continue to be an enemy. Each time I pass your house, your dog goes into a state of fury, she says. I have no doubt that he sees it as his duty to hate me, but I am shocked by his hatred of me, shocked and terrified. Each time I pass by your home is a humiliating experience. It is humiliating to be so terrified, to be unable to resist it, to be unable to put a stop to the fear. The couple stare at her stonily. This is a public way, she says. I have a right on a public way not to be terrified 
not to be humiliated. You have it in your power to correct this. It is our road, says the woman. We did not invite you here. You can take another road. The man speaks for the first time. Who are you? By what right do you come and tell us how to conduct ourselves? She is about to give her reply, but he is not interested. Go, he says. Go, go, go. The cuff of the woolen cardigan he wears is unraveling. As he waves his hand to dismiss her, it trails in the bowl of coffee. She thinks of pointing this out to him, but then does not. Without a word, she retreats. The door closes behind her. The dog hurls himself at the fence. One day, says the dog, this fence will give way. One day, says the dog, I will tear you to pieces. As calmly as she can, though she is trembling, though she can feel waves of fear pulsing from her body into the air, she faces the dog and speaks using human words. Curse you to hell, she says. Then she mounts her bicycle and sets off up the hill. So finally, after all of this talking, Alec, you've also been thinking about silence. And one of the people you spoke to in Cartagena was the polar explorer Arlen Kager. Can you tell me about him and what, what was he like to speak to? Well, he is an utterly compelling character. In fact, he's rather more than a polar explorer, as if that wasn't enough. I mean, to be clear, <laughs> yes, he's walked on his own to the South Pole 50 days without speaking to anyone. That is pretty extraordinary. Yes, he's climb Mount Everest with somebody else. He's walked with one other person to the North Pole. But beyond being an explorer, he's a, he's a philosopher. He thinks a lot about life and how we live life. He's also an amazing art collector, as it happens, but he's also very funny. He was a terrific conversationalist and a, and a slightly improbable one because Cartagena, it's a very smart upmarket city and full of quite grand people and grand literary types. And there's nothing remotely grand about <laughs> about Kaga, who who was sitting there in the, when I met him in the garden of this former nunnery, beautiful garden. And there he is with, you know, no shoes on, shaggy beard. <laughs> uh, looking rugged at the, explorer. Exactly. He does look like he looks like a rugged explorer because he is a rugged explorer. It's just that he's much more than that. And he's written a book about silence, which I don't imagine there is a lot of in your busy life editing and managing all these different people. Where do you find silence? Improbably, I find silence on the London Underground, <laughs> uh, which, of course, is a ferocious place and notoriously busy. But there's something very wonderful about what Steve Jobs has brought into our lives, which is these earpieces. So I listen to audio books, which may not seem like actual silence, but they seem like silence compared to the cacophony of work. I don't think I have any silence in my life. I think I would 
hate to work in a silent office. I sometimes found as news editor, I'd get a bit frustrated. That was my previous job before I was running the FT weekend. I'd get a bit frustrated when I walk into the newsroom and, and see dozens and dozens of people tapping away on silent keyboards and not saying anything. No one was speaking on the phone. And I thought this isn't how a newsroom is meant to be. Mercifully, at the FD weekend, they're quite a chatty bunch, as you know. So there's quite <laughs> a lot. Of of, there's a lot office. of banter uh, that goes on, as well as just chat about stories and so on. But it you, can be you, quite distracting, though, can't it, to try and write something and really focus the mind when people are chatting and phones are going off and. I have to confess, I am the only person at the weekend to have an office. <laughs> do you have your special uh, glass box? And I do have my glass box, my old-fashioned editor's glass box, which, as you will know, I don't spend nearly as much time in as many previous editors have done. I do most of my editing surrounded by other editors, not least because actually I find collaborative editing is incredibly helpful. Does this piece work? Um, it doesn't, but I just don't quite know why. So you sort of look up from the screen mm-hmm. and you can speak to one of my uh, life and arts colleagues and say, why doesn't this work? And I say, well, I think it doesn't work. And they say, yes, that's it. Silence as an editor is not much help. Once you start hiding yourself away in your glass box, then you're lost, sunk, <laughs> <laughs> finished. <laughs> well, if you do ever want to find some silence, I can recommend the Scottish Highlands as a good place to find restorative silence. That's where I find silence in my life. Once a year. Ah, uh, uh, that's no, that's. I mean, more seriously, I have found silence on the south coast of Devon, and possibly, as you say, in the Highlands once or twice in the past, and also in the Kalahari Desert um, <laughs> some time ago. It's really quite hard to find silence. Okay, so to end our Cartagena dispatch, let's listen to your interview with Arlen Carga on the subject of silence. Why don't you start by telling us why you decided to write a book about silence? I had three teenage daughters on a Sunday dinner. I start to understand that they didn't know what silence is. It's always telephone beeping, some expectations, some disturbances. And of course, noise then is about moving away from yourself. I try to explain them the importance of silence. We are a communicative species. That's one of the things that defines us. We like being sociable by and large and that's one of the joys and signal successes of humanity to communicate. Definitely. I think uh, that combined with walking on two legs made us really successful. We should communicate but humans also need to relate to themselves. That's also kind of key thing for development of humankind that they've gotten to know of itself. I think you need to turn around, maybe for half a minute, maybe for a few days, and um, stop thinking. Try to discover and explore yourself. The quest to find yourself dates back thousands of years. Ancient Athenians used to talk about one of the key tenets of life being know yourself. How much harder do you think is it in the age of social media or is is this merely just the latest distraction and there have always been distractions? It has always been distractions. Today I think it's slightly more difficult than it has ever been because we got internet 20-25 years ago, we got the smartphones 11 years ago. So much more expectations, so much more man-made noise, even you can't look into a starry night most places on Earth because it's man-made light. 
but as the French philosopher Blaise Pascal famously wrote in the 1650s, man has always had a hard time sitting by himself alone in a room doing nothing. And instead of doing nothing, he does something. And that's the beginning of all his problems. And that's 350 years ago. And I think, you know, today, as I said, the problem is even tougher than it was in the 1640s because there's so many more temptations, so many, you know, alternatives in life. Also, has a very good side, a very positive side. I think life, you know, today are much richer than it used to be in many ways. And I think also the world is a better place to be or live today than it was 50 years ago or 500 years ago. But we're having a huge challenge with all this noise. I find silence, and I'm talking about inner silence. When I wake up in the morning, when I walk to the office, if I walk the stairs instead of taking the lift, I find inner silence when I cook, when I do the dishes afterwards, when I'm having sex, when I read or listening to music. We have this huge wave with people knitting, brewing beer, chopping wood. This is all about inner silence. You took the, the quest for silence and indeed your belief in, in walking to sort of to quite a, quite a degree. You walked across the South Pole or you walked to the South Pole. What's the, the, the greatest lesson you learned from your long period alone in silence? I walked for 50 days and nights under the midnight sun. As the hours and days and weeks pass by, you start to feel at one with nature. Gradually, you start to feel that your body doesn't stop by your fingers, but it's extended into the nature. You're part of the whole thing. When you feel that you're part of all this huge vastness and all these forces in nature, you start to feel really humble. But on the other side, you also feel that you're an important part of this universe. Many things depend on you. So at the same time as you feel this humbleness, and then you start to believe that your mind is somehow wider than the universe. You need to make your own silence. You can't wait for silence to come to you. You have to make it yourself. How successful are your children in following this philosophy? Do they say, Dad, it's not for us? I wrote the book, not only for them, but part of them. Mm. And today they are 15, 18 and 21. And the two oldest, they read the book, enjoyed it. But of course the 50-year-old daughter and I think 15-year-old girls are probably the unhappiest group on earth and she started to read the book and after a page or two she stopped reading and just said this is bullshit <laughs> i mean obviously for her silence is about being bored it's about being lonely it's not about, about being let out and of course silence is about that too lastly you're, you're now embarked on writing a book about walking does this go hand in hand with silence? Is this part of the same, same quest to find ourselves? Or is this just about fitness? No, I think it's this walking as inner silence, quite similar in the sense that walking is very concrete while silence is very abstract. But somehow, you know, it goes hand in hand in life. Walking can enrich our lives, not first of all as a sport, but something why move slowly from one place to another one when you can drive a car. I believe if you drive for one hour a distance that you need seven hours to walk, it's tempting to think that you saved six hours. 
that's not how it is because as every walker knows that if you walk that expands time you see so, so much more you listen you hear uh, you smell uh, so many details it's enriching your life the whole this walk while speed is kind of narrowing time so walking is, is expanding time That's it for this week. Erling Karger's book Silence in an Age of Noise and Yar Jassy's Homegoing are both out now. And J.M. Kutzia's Seven Moral Tales will be published later this year. Next week, I'll be speaking to Simon Sharma about his new TV series, Civilizations, which of course is a remake of the Kenneth Clark original. And I'll also visit the new exhibition of the very provocative artist, Eddie Peake. You can subscribe to Everything Else on any podcast app or you can listen online at ft.com slash everything else. Please do leave us a rating or review on Apple Podcasts to help other people discover us. Everything we've talked about today, you can find at our Facebook page, facebook.com slash everything else podcast. You can also email us at everything else at ft.com. This podcast is produced by Chica Ayres. I've been Griselda Murray-Brown and our music is composed and produced by Fatim. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash trip for free shipping and 365-day returns.